Welcome to New Books and Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Jen Huntley, and today I'm talking to Char Miller about his new book, Public Lands, Public Debates, A Century of Controversy, out this year with the Oregon State University Press. Director of the Environmental Analysis Program and W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis at Pomona College, Char Miller has built a career around the study of public land management philosophy and practice. He has written and edited numerous books, including Gifford Pinchot and the Making of Modern Environmentalism, Water in the 21st Century West, a High Country News Reader, and Cities and Nature, Urban Environments in the American West. Miller explicitly designed the essays in Public Lands, Public Debates to appeal to a wide audience and give them the power of public lands controversies to engage Americans across class, regional, and political realms in deep discourse. I'm sure this book will strike a chord with many. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Miller's provocative and engaging essays, and I know you will too. Please enjoy this interview with Char Miller. Today we're going to be talking to Char Miller, who is the author of the very recently published Public Lands, Public Debates, A Century of Controversy, just out this year with the Oregon State University Press. Um, I've done, I've read this book. It does a fantastic job of capturing the range of debates about public lands in a dynamic and accessible format. It's a series of short essay vignettes, each focusing on a particular historic episode in public lands debates that shed lights, sheds light on various aspects of controversy in the United States. So Char, thank you very much. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jen, so much. I'm glad to be here. This will be, this will be fun. It is. It's great. So um, first of all, I'd like you to say a few words about yourself, like where, where were you born? Where did you go to school? How did you get interested in environmental history and public lands? Um, things like that. Well, I wish I could say I had an epiphany at some point in my life that led me to environmental history, but unfortunately, it's a longer and less, more obscure process, I think, in my case. I grew up in Connecticut um, and went to high school there and ultimately came west for college at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, where I'm now teaching at its sister institution, Pomona College. Um, and even though I was living here and studying with people who were working on environmental issues, actually my interests at that time were much more intellectual and cultural. So I was very interested, for example, ironically, in Gifford Pinchot, um, who, who ultimately I would write a book about, but, but I didn't really think about his work as a conservationist. I was really interested in his life and others like him who were reformers and was puzzled by the the reformist impulse. Why did people want to change the world? Um, I hadn't yet focused on why people changed the landscape. I was more interested in sort of the political and social side of these issues. So I went off to graduate school at Johns Hopkins in American history, studied with Kenneth Lynn, who was a brilliant literary and intellectual historian. And um, while talking with him about what I wanted to do for my, my dissertation, realized I really actually had a different story to look at. And so the first book ultimately was called Fathers and Sons, The Bingham Family and the American Mission, which looked at um, this five generation of, of, of a family, all males, all fathers and sons, interacting with one another as they all became reformers of one kind or another, was trying to look at that question of why did someone uh, want to change the world? What was motivating them to do so? When I finished that, I realized I had a, you know, 
that was great, and that might actually get me tenure, which was good. By this time, I was I was teaching at Trinity University in San Antonio, where I was happily, happily teaching for the next twenty something years or so. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of casting around for another thing, and I had written a paper about Pinchot when I was in graduate school, but I hadn't done anything beyond that. And I was suddenly, in the midst of the Reagan administration, I realized, wait a second, there's a Republican administration who really hates environmental issues, or really hates environmentalists in a sense. Um, and I've actually studied people who were Republicans 80 years ago who thought very differently. So maybe there's a story here. Right. So the Pinchot biography, which ultimately took 15 years to write, um, really was sparked or re-sparked by that issue. And I have to give Gifford Pinchot credit for changing my life and career. Because once I started to write about him, I realized that I was asking the wrong questions or that there were better questions or different questions to ask, Mm -hmm. which was not why did he become the conservationist, although the book does talk about that. It's really what did conservation mean in America? What did it mean to say that some lands needed to be set aside and protected and preserved in one set of ways and other lands we could, you know, beat up as cities or industrialize or whatever? And so, you know, he gave me that question. So I'm deeply grateful for him. And as as I know for you, having written about about Yosemite and the folks who were there, suddenly your subjects are starting to define what it was you thought you were going to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and that that clearly comes through in this book, in the Public Lands Public Debates book, that you are still grappling with that question on a different level or different dimensions. Yeah, I think that's right. And, 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 you know, in a way, um, what the Pinchot biography taught me in a hard way was that, that it was hard to figure out where I stood relative to the subject I was writing about. I didn't know narratively where to locate myself. And that was hard because I sort of went into the project thinking, well, Pinchot, you know, he might be a good foil for Reagan, but but I'm still a murite. So how do I deal with that? (laughs) And, you know, that's sort of an interesting problem in its own right. But but in the end, what helped me understand that subject, and then, as you say, sort of continue to play it out in the new book, was that it didn't really matter where I was. Mm-hmm. The really issue was trying to figure out how to talk to a professional audience, but also a broader public, um, about these issues that I think matter to all of us, but we don't always um, give credit to them. Right. And so this new book, as you as you suggested, um, is really another attempt at getting at the same kinds of issues about why the environment matters, why situating ourselves in natural systems and being conscious about that is really important. But the other piece to the book was um, that I wanted to speak to um, my sisters, to my family, to people who I knew would not read just another monograph. I mean, they might because I wrote it, but but right. probably, you know, they'd skim it and say, yeah, interesting book, Charles. Yeah, nice job. Uh, I actually, yeah, nice. Thanks a lot for sharing. <laughs> uh, and what I really wanted to do was to, to sort of engage them where they were, which is in busy lives that, that required them to do lots of different things, and picking up a heavy tome may not be one of them. Okay, uh, so. Yeah, so. So that's how that's you. That's what I was trying to do. So is that that how you came to the structure of creating yeah. these these little vignettes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, 
it's another piece of awkwardness because, you know, we're all trained as professionals to write, you know, 20 to 30 page articles with deep footnotes and all right. of that. And it was like, I've done that. I don't <laughs> actually have to do that in the same way, but still convey the storyline right. and still sort of transmit the history. And as you know, from teaching, that's part of what we do. We don't load it up with all of the scholarship up front. It's sure. embedded in how we lecture and talk and discuss. So I thought, well, okay, I've been teaching for almost, well, in this case now 30 years. Um, why not try that bit? Um, okay. And so as, as a way of thinking about it, I actually talked to myself about, okay, so Instead of as as you're thinking about this, who are you going to dedicate the book to? Which is kind of weird, mm -hmm. but I decided I would dedicate it to the students that I have studied with uh, happily for the last 31 years at Trinity University in San Antonio and Pomona College now in Claremont, because they've really been um, the source of a lot of how I think about teaching, which, as it turns out, is a lot like I'm now thinking about writing. Right. And yeah. so it's been that's been really exciting for me. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, like these are almost like 50 minute lectures, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, they're short, they're compact, they get their points across, I hope. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope also that they're, 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 it was exciting for me to write these things. And so I hope it's exciting for people to read them. That's fantastic. Well, you've divided your book into four uh, sections and each yeah. section is, um, it contains some of these these 50-minute lectures, as you're talking about, although I would guess that they're actually less than that. More yeah, like, probably. More like 20-minute 20, 20 TED Talks. <laughs> yes, that's right. There you go. Um, and uh, what I was thinking about is, would you be interested in talking a little bit about each one of these sections as a whole? And sure. then pick your favorite episode out to kind of go into a little bit more detail and and tell us about how that episode as you see it illustrates this larger point that you're getting at so for example well, let's start, yeah let's start with creative forces what are you what are you thinking yeah. about in that section well part of the part of the question is the part of the book is framed around not just that we have public lands, but why do we have public lands? What, what's their purpose and how did that happen? And who defined those purposes that are still controversial to us such that the current candidates in the GOP presidential uh, campaign are, are, are lambasting the fact that we have these public lands as they make their tours through the West. So something's going on. Uh, right. We have them, but we're not easy with them, or at least some people are not easy with them. So I wanted to sort of write um, a series of pieces that looked at um, who who came up with these ideas, what their lives were like, what they were thinking of as they were doing it in the late 19th century, and why then? Why that time did some Americans decide that some lands ought to be set aside so that we could better regulate the use of natural resources? And as I've talked with my students, and now probably bored them endlessly, <laughs> um, this generation of the late 19th and early 20th century were really remarkable people. And in some ways, their ambitions and their dreams and their fantasies are the worlds we live in now, mm. that they really invented the world we inhabit. And so thinking about people like Pinchot, to be sure, but even earlier than he, people like George Perkins Marsh and Nathaniel Eggleston and Albert Potter and other folks that most people don't know much about, right. turns out they're very creative souls. And they were trying to wrestle with an industrial revolution that seemed to them to be going um, too hard, too fast, and was obliterating things that they loved. 
And so they, they sort of stepped in and, and created a political consensus that some of those places would be protected, ultimately as national parks, in some cases as national forests, ultimately also as well as national refuges. A whole set of institutions that never existed prior to this generation thinking mm. that they ought to. And that's pretty amazing. Um, but the story that within this that I'm really intrigued by is the way in which those past thoughts still inflect present actions. And so the, one of the pieces in here is a piece called Rough Terrain, Forced Management and Its Discontents. Mm-hmm. And it looks at the pushback against these ideas. That is to say, those who thought that George Perkins Marsh and, and um, um, George Bird Grinnell and Gifford Pinchot and Teddy Roosevelt and Mabel Osgood Wright and others who were really battling for birds and landscapes and trees mm-hmm. and all these other kinds of things, that they were, they were wrong. And so, you know, you have to give the opposition credit. And so right. this piece actually starts off in the contemporary world um, in which uh, Earth First uh, firebombed, Earth Liberation Front, I should say, Earth Liberation Front right. firebombed a series of buildings in, in Oregon and Seattle, and ultimately the one I'm, I'm describing is at the University of Washington. And I was struck when it happened um, in, in May of 2001 that, that what I was looking at was actually a tradition of violence and nonviolent reaction against the imposition of a scientific management of landscapes um, and the politics that came from that. And so, although the wise youth movement of the 1980s and 90s would never see themselves in relationship to the Earth Liberation Front, I actually think they're they're linked in an intellectual mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, that they don't like the system as it is, and they're going to push back by whatever means is possible. And in some cases, with the wise youth movement blowing up ranger stations and putting bombs under a ranger's car. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is much different from blowing up a, um, a, a lab in which ge- genetically modified material is being assessed and, and researched. So yeah. there was that piece to it that really struck me as quite interesting. And then there was this other side piece that was, I think, important that we often forget about politics. You actually need the edge. You need the periphery. You need the far right and the far left to define the center. Mm, interesting. And that it's, it's an important for us to remember that um, Martin Luther King needed Malcolm X. Right. Malcolm mm-hmm. X needed Martin Luther King. I mean, exactly. there's sort of tension that flows in that direction. And in the environmental world, it works similarly because it's a way for the Sierra Club to say, well, we're not that. We're just this. And that actually gives them a larger credence, I think. And sure. so that's sort of the piece I was working on that I think is probably most engaging for me as the writer um, thinking about it. But, you know, thinking like a conservationist, which is the title of another piece, is also intriguing because how do we think? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we say we're one thing, what does that actually mean, mm-hmm. um, particularly in terms of public lands? And that leads to the second section, which is um, a piece on policy schemes, as I've right. described them. And the question here is, once you've created something called a national forest, now what do you do? Right. How do you actually manage such an object? And who's going to do the managing? Uh, and on what basis? And so this contains a series of essays that, that look at a, um, a number of decisions and then a legal decisions that were framed around people who um, thought we ought to manage in certain ways and um, got the legal 
right to do so. And then again, there's always the pushback. Mm -hmm. So it looks at, for example, the Antiquities Act, which gave the President of the United States unparalleled power to, uh, through the Antiquities Act, to create national monuments without ever asking anybody. Congress, state right. legislatures, whoever, just gives them an enormous amount of power. Um, the Weeks Act, which came a few years later, um, granted the federal government the right for the first time to buy private land for conservation purposes. And hmm. so this really affected the East where there was very little public land and allowed the national force to emerge in the East in the Pisgah in South in North Carolina, in uh, the White Mountain National mm -hmm. Forest, the Green Mountain National Forest in New England and places like that. Uh, but the piece I'm really, you know, I want to talk about is this is this story that I sort of knew but didn't know very much about and it was it was around um it occurred in 1911, mm -hmm. and it was a lawsuit that ultimately made its way up to the Supreme Court. And it's U.S. v. Grimond, which was decided in May of 1911. And Grimond, who is a person no one knows anything about, he okay. was a shepherd. He was operated in the Sierra and uh, decided one day, as did many shepherds at that time, that these national forests meant nothing to them. They'd always grazed there. They were going to continue to graze there. And the only problem is that this time he got caught. And the irony is that the guy who caught him is a guy by the name of William B. Greeley, who would in time become the third chief of the Forest Service. So Greeley catches this guy and says, where's your permit? Because everybody had to have a permit for use on land. And Grimaud had to admit that he didn't have one. And that launched a legal battle that went through uh, the federal court system. Ultimately, the Supreme Court argued that Grimond did not have the right to graze, that, that regulations, in fact, mattered, um, and that the Forest Service, this fledgling institution in 1911, it was only six years old at that point, actually had the constitutional right to manage its land. Mm. That's a really important decision mm -hmm. because it's one thing to say, let's have a national park or a national forest. It's another thing to say, inside those boundary lines, only certain things can happen, and I have the right to say so. And the power to, to make those. And the power. Yeah, right, right. to enforce I mean, that. William B. Greeley could stop the guy and then say, by the way, you're going to jail. Right. Uh, which is really important. But what's also interesting about these various court decisions, and there's, there's, um, there are others that came at the exact same period that was parallel with this. But I was writing it at the centennial. I wrote this in May of, of 2011. Um, the it it raises this other issue that I think is also a kind of neat loop in which Grimond is tra tra trying to challenge the existence of a national forest. And what he actually ended up doing in his in the lawsuit bearing his name was to make sure that they long endured. <laughs> so there's, you know, I mean, that's a good story and it has a nice narrative arc, but it also is true in that respect that, right. that these are ways in which we're starting to think about uh, if you challenge it, what does that actually mean? Um, the the more contemporary issues within this section also look at issues around, um, I mean, I've got a chapter called um, Reefer, Reefer Madness mm -hmm. um, that, that sort of looks at marijuana planting on, on the national forest, illegal, obviously, mm -hmm. um, and how that challenges those of us who consider ourselves um, environmentalists 
Right. And and um, how you attack a drug culture that has decided that the national forest really ought to be growing dope, um, <laughs> and and the consequences of that. So that you know it was it was a fun process to work my way through in terms of thinking about these various issues of of that, and also finally in a bigger sense, uh, the last chapter in this in this section looks at the agency, the Forest Service in this case, and what its future might be. It's one thing to talk about its past. It's another to start to fantasize about its future. And I, right. I say this hesitantly as an historian who knows nothing about the future, to be sure. Um, but I was interested in asking a, a sort of pers- prospective question, which is, if the agency has functioned in the ways that it's functioned over the last 105 years or so, 106 years of its existence, what's it going to do in the second 100 years? And how might that look? Um, and so that, that, that's a chapter that's highly speculative and raises questions about sort of potentially future orientations. Mm-hmm. And I raise it because the third segment called Internal Tensions um, raises questions about the possibility of a future for any agency, let alone a forest service, as it's been described in the rest of the book. And so this, these set of pieces actually come out of a segment between 2004 and 2009 when um, I did a lot of traveling, writing, mm-hmm. and talking about the forest service, in part because it, the agency was going through its centennial. And then just kept writing because the issue struck me as really kind of interesting. And so this internal tension section looks not at the outside, but at the inside, not at how people were critiquing the organization from Congress or from a nonprofit point of view or an environmentalist point of view, but actually what's, what was going on internal to the agency um, and the questions uh, and tugs and pulls that were driving its own internal uh, life in a way. And so... The pieces look at a series of issues um, that have cropped up since 2004-2005 and continue to ripple out in a new way, um, asking about um, how an agency can change its operations, alter its policymaking, um, transform its public relations. And and so, I, hmm. you know, I sort of pop in and out of various conferences and the like to listen in on what was taking place. And the more intriguing of these, in some senses, was a, is a chapter called Identity Crisis, mm-hmm. which in 2008, um, the Forest Service um, published a internal survey of its, of its um, members, of its um, employees. And actually, that's part of what's going on. The other part of it is trying to figure out how to um, address internal concerns as an agency ages. Right. And like the rest of the United States, the Forest Service, like the Park Service, like BLM, is filled with baby boomers like me Mm -hmm. who are getting to the end of their professional careers. And the question is, how does the agency regenerate itself? So you have to ask yourself questions like that. And so they hired an outside firm to come in and and to sort of pose the questions and take the temperature of the organization to get a feel for um, what its future looks like by sort of gazing in a crystal ball about its presence. Hmm. How are people feeling and how how are they how are they changing? How are their lives changing in some fashion? And it turns out the changes are tough and that people are unsettled by what they're going through. 
both young, middle-aged, and older employees are all sort of in this intergenerational cement mixer. Um, (laughs) And they all sort of vaguely think the past was a lot happier. No, it wasn't, and I think the rest of the book demonstrates that, Right. uh, which tells you the power of nostalgia. But it also tells you that people are a little risk-averse, like they're not quite ready to step into some new future because they're sort of hungering for something that seems to have been more stable and consistent across time. Right. So, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. And institutions, all institutions go through this process, I think. Sure. and, and, and it struck me as just a very interesting moment in which an agency sort of checks in with itself and finds itself pretty troubled. Hmm. And then the final section um, is, for me, in many ways, where I think the work of environmentalism needs to go. And that's predicated in part on that's where I think I need to go. And so I'm going to bring <laughs> along everybody else, which right. is narcissistic, but okay. Oh, well. Um, and and it's, it's really framed around the question of climate change and the global nature of that shift that we're already experiencing. And I, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, I was just beginning to think about these issues. And I went to a trip to Ecuador, which was actually for fun, but it became, as it turns out, professionally probably the most important thing I'd done in a long time. And we went out to a place called uh, Tipotini Biodiversity Reserve out in the Amazon, um, eastern Ecuador. And I was simply blown away, as as the essay I hope shows, that that I had never seen a forest quite like this. I didn't Mm. even know that it was a forest. I didn't, none of the frames of reference that I thought I knew from the United States mattered at all in what I was looking at. The birds were completely different. The morpho butterflies just, you know, knocked me out. Right. The trees. The trees don't have tree rings. Right? Like, how, what does that mean? <laughs> so I was sort of unglued uh, in the process in, in, in what I think is a very helpful way uh, and forced me to realize that all that I thought I knew uh, was was sort of overwhelmed. Um, and, I mean, the last line, in a sense, was I had to go abroad to understand the wooded world next door, that it really forced me to think out globally about the force that I thought I understood, which, is, as it turns out, I think I didn't understand. Um, and the, the piece that, you know, let me talk a little bit about was that was most transformative was going down to Brazil um, several years later, mm-hmm. um, and working with an organization called Rights and Resources and the U.S. Forest Service, both of whom sponsored um, this this trip, which was uh, to look at and to go along with global foresters, foresters from all over the planet, in a thing called Megafloristias. So I was at the 2008 one in, in Brazil and in the 2007 one in um, St. Petersburg in, in Russia. Mm-hmm. And the most fascinating thing is to listen to foresters from Indonesia and China, uh, from the Congo, from Russia, from Europe, from um, North America, who are confronting globally the same kinds of issues, hmm. but are having to deal with them through very different political institutions. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, if you're thinking about China versus uh, Canada versus Brazil, we're looking at political institutions that are so different, and yet they're, trying, they're all wrestling with, oh, my God, you know, the climate is changing and the forest cover is going to change. And, we've, and, and so how do we wrestle with environmental justice issues to make mm. sure that people have an economic life that, that flows off of these forests, and yet also manage these landscapes in a ways that will allow them 
to endure across time so that we can have economic and environmental services that flow off of them. <laughs> and so the piece that I, that the last piece in the book is called Forestry Done Right, and it's looking at a, uh, it uses as a case study um, a piece of property um, in Brazil, in the Amazon, and I've actually got on my desk a, a paperweight that I that they gave us. It's, it's an organization called Precious Woods. It's a European-funded uh, Forest Stewardship Council certified um, landscape. And with my my forester colleagues, um, we spent a day walking the lands of this organization and listening to the resident foresters talk to us about um, what they were doing and how hmm. they were intertwining um, forestry, a professional object of which is to cut trees for production, with social justice issues in terms of the, of the workers who work for them and also the communities that revolve around them, and with this new concept of sustainability, which is to say, in a forestry notion, is that you do not clear cut, you don't bulldoze this stuff down, which is happening all around it. Um, sure. There's a better way, an easier way on the land to make this work, and it all sounds you know, better than probably it actually is. And, mm-hmm. the, and the piece has some concerns about that. But I was, I was struck by what I was looking at was potentially a resolution for the intertwined questions of um, environmental management, environmental justice, and, and environmental economics, which mm-hmm. is how can you make the landscape work for us and we for it? Um, so that it is not destroyed, it is precious, it is maintained, all the while knowing that there are other places that we want to preserve so that they are, you know, the biological diversity is less disturbed, um, the air is cleaner, the water is better. I mean, that how do we better understand public lands and the debates that wrap around them, whether in Brazil or the United States, Canada or China? Um, what's the mechanism by which we do that? Mm. And the book is an attempt to raise those questions. I don't answer them. Um, I don't think they're unanswerable or inanswerable, but I, but I do think um, my, my job was really to sort of start the conversation. Right. Um, and so I hope it does. <laughs> well, I think you raise a lot of really, you know, um, contemporary, of course, issues like with this global warming um, within a historical context, which is yeah. fantastic. I, I think you're absolutely right to say, you know, that there is a kind of nostalgia um, clearly within the Forest Service Agency. But I think that's something that, you know, the, is carried around in the broader public, too. And I think, yeah, I think it is. kind of... Um, I think that is going back to your very early point about how the, the similarities between the left and the right edges is that animus. There's there's uh, uh, an energy that seems to be fueled by this mythology of the past. So I, I really love the way that you link the present and the past together constantly in, in these um, discussions. I have a question for you. Sure. Um, your your premise is that this is about public lands, but you are talking mostly about the Forest Service. And I'm just wondering how um, 
to what degree do you see the the forest service issues being characteristic of other land management yeah. agencies in, in America and also how are they different because there are episodes in the book where you draw those contrasts like with the yeah. national park service in the 1930s yeah. and things like that so can you talk yeah. a little more about that yeah i would love to and i and i Great. i think that it it's a really interesting dilemma for 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 those of us like you who write about the National Park Service, <laughs> which, you know, its landscapes are always embedded within national forest because that's where the mm-hmm. land came from initially in some ways. And so all of a sudden you have two agencies, and in the case of BLM, and maybe Fish and Wildlife, and then state lands and county parks or whatever. I mean, if you start to look at the map of public lands as a flow chart, it's really complicated. Um, and so on the one hand, I would say that any one of these entities, whether it's local, state, or, or federal, um, operates within a political landscape that is oftentimes um, confusing because it itself has overlapping authorities and boundary lines. Hmm. So part of the thing that I think all of us wrestle with when we write about the past or the present of these institutions is trying to sort through what the pressure points are, trying to figure out internal to each of these agencies what they are charged with doing, what's their mission, Mm -hmm. um, and how does that mission differ across the boundary lines, literal in a property sense, but also in a political sense, um, the lines that demarcate a national forest from a national park, from a national grassland, from a refuge, from a state park or something like that. And you know, you got to pick your fights and you got to pick your focus. And mine's on the Forest Service, but it's but it's um, one of the things I've learned in talking with National Park Service employees and BLM employees and the like is that there are resonances between their struggles and there are dis- their, their distinctions. And the resonances are that a you work in effect for the American people, your budget comes through Congress, which means there's all sorts of interest groups that can shape that budget regardless of what you would like to do. They would like you to do something else. Um, and so I was, uh, I was in at Alaska uh, in the uh, 2004 presidential campaign, hmm. and the rangers were telling me that they were getting phone calls direct, not through their forest supervisor, but direct from the congressional delegation of Alaska about what they could and couldn't say about anything uh, to the public. <laughs> Talk about pressure. Right. And, yeah. you know, I suspect that's true at BLM and NPS, uh, NPS as well at different points. And it, and it taught me something. I had not, I didn't know such things happened. I thought things were, you know, rational, uh, and <laughs> not outside the board. But, but, but so they'll tell you that those things happen. But there are so, as I say, distinguishing marks that make a national park not a national forest and a national forest not a national park. And it's embedded in their mission statements and in, in the congressional, um, demands on them for what they are to do. And as you know, the National Park is really about the preservation of landscapes and mm-hmm. the telling of those lands' history through their preservation. And mm-hmm. so if you're at Yosemite or Death Valley or, or um, Arches or some other wonderful national park, the purpose is really to preserve the landform as best we're able to do mm-hmm. and open it for our exploration under certain guidelines and regulations. But it's not to mine. It isn't a gas drill. It isn't to do fracking. Right. Uh, it's not a clear cut. It's a very different process. And so um, part of what I tried to do 
And, for example, there's a piece called Placemaking, which looks at devil's post pile. Right. Which sometimes was in the Forest Service and sometimes was in the Park Service. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this will be fun. Yeah. You know, and it turns out it's a Forest Service guy who stops the development of the, of the river such that devil's post pile actually wouldn't get submerged. But in the end, it's really, and, and rightly, inside National Park Service now as, a, as, a, as one of its uh, really fabulous places. And... You know, those are stories that I and complications that I hope people will pick up on. That when you step over one boundary line, you're stepping into a history, right? Stepping into a a human articulation of what it is you should feel and think about in a particular space and use. (laughs) So it's been that part's really exciting for me, even (laughs) though I don't write about it all the time. I'm 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 alert to it uh, in part because I think you have to be when you enter into a place that is. functions in a different fashion. That's that's a really good point. Um, I don't know if this is relating to this or, or going off in a totally different direction. Another theme that came up as you were talking in my mind, just listening to you talk, is um, especially when you were dealing with kind of the early, the, the origin of um, these institutions at the, at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th, yeah. is the role of science in this whole yeah, good, good, good. discussion because um, and is especially when you bring in the earth liberation front um, uh, attack because that is all about the the fear that people have about science or the scientific experimentation, scientific um, inquiry and manipulation and, and this feeling of power. I mean, on one hand, science is empowering. It empowers the progressives, right? It gives them this great tool to say, we are going to manage these resources scientifically as opposed to by free market principles. And on the other hand, it's disempowering. So people are saying, well, what what happens when these genes get, you know, loose, you know, Franken um, plants, you know, running around in our, in our genetic pool. So um, as you're going through this, what do you, what are you as a historian and somebody who's looking at these disputes, how do you see science um, running through these stories? Well, I I love the question and I wish I had had this question a year and a half ago (laughs) (laughs) so I could better weave it more explicitly. Next book. Yeah, that's the next book. But I think you've actually touched on something that's so crucial in contemporary popular culture, but which I think, as you as you also know, uh, you roll back to the late 19th century, and science was perceived of as this liberating object. And, it, and as it turns out, it, it, it was a language that Pinchot, who was trained in forestry, was happy to use to make a political case for why national forests ought to exist. And, and it turns out that, that the Antiquities Act, which has been a huge benefit to the National Park Service, also makes the same claim about science, in this case, archaeology, um, as a science, in a sense, right. that would lead to preservation. And so whether you preserve or you regulate and thus utilize in the ways that Pinchot was imagining, both are drawing off of this new scientific tradition that says there is this person who knows science, let's call him an, an expert because it's mostly hymns at that point. Right. Um, and this expert knows things that non-experts don't know, and that gives them 
the right, in a sense, politically, at least to make the case that their position ought to be heard and maybe even accepted uh, writ large. Um, in, in Pinchot's calculation, some of this, and, and, and Greeley, who would follow him, to, uh, who was the third chief of the Forest Service following this, made these cases that, look, science has its way of helping unlock some of the secrets of nature and how it operates. But it turns out it also allows us to better regulate its uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Pinchot would argue in, in a variety of contexts, in, you know, publicly and, and in letters and the like, that, look, the real thing about conservation is we're not managing the land. We're managing the people. <laughs> and that, that strikes me, uh, as you have suggested, in two ways, one of which is he's not wrong. Right. behavior is actually the issue. And he is wrong in the sense of then you're now, now we're dealing with sort of democratic pressures, which is why uh, the public debates part of the title of my book right. is in there. This is not just about the land. It's about the debates over the land and who manages it and under what conditions. And uh, science has played, as you say, this really interesting um, role that at times is at the exact same moment it is beneficial. It can be a deficit. Well, and I, you know, this is me kind of, you know, coming in with my own opinion here. But I I really think that this question about science, there's a... There's a kind of dark side to the scientists sure. of the turn of the century that is, um, look, we have this expertise that allows us to transcend de- the democratic process. And I think that there there's an attempt um, at various points in time over our history for scientists to say this is indisputable. You know, it's science. And, and yet, as you point out in some of the mismanagement of, of fire, you know, fire suppression, right. and, right. you know, that, that what is best science in 1910 is, it turns out in, you know, 1999 to be a very bad idea. Right. So, right. Uh, and now, you know, and now we're faced with this climate change as you, you know, very, very, um, relevantly wrap your book up around, uh, and again, scientists are befuddled by why is it that people are not, you know, accepting this idea. And I think that the, the history that you lay out, if it's not necessarily explicit, in a lot of your stories, it still points to that dynamic yeah. as well. Yeah, is, that's fair. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoy about um, reading this book and and thinking about. So it is it is very. I think you were very successful at raising some excellent questions that are. Gonna, oh, thank you. <laughs> that are going to. I love that. Yeah, and hopefully um, keep those debates and those controversies going. So. Well, and I think that's part of it is that in the end, that there's a line in there somewhere about. Um, you know, that, that uh, oh, I know, sort of the pull quote on the book is watching democracy at work can be bewildering, even frustrating, <laughs> but the only way individuals and organizations can sift through the often, often messy business of public deliberation is to deliberate. Yes, exactly. Uh, we, we can't hide, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if we really think this is important, let's start and stop with climate change. If we're really going to do it, then get into the public arena and talk about it. And right. don't, you know, just assume people should accept it and don't just assume that the scientists are wrong. Um, but actually have a real conversation. And that's not something we're real able to do. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, Char, we've taken up a lot of your time. 
And um, I really, really want to thank you for being on the show today. That uh, the excitement in your voice about this project just is it just is really great. And and I think this is going to be a fantastic contribution to these ongoing discussions. I was wondering if well, you could take a few minutes sure. to tell us about what your next project is. Well, there's a couple of projects that are underway, um, and one of them is 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 looking at the 50th anniversary of the Pinchot Institute for Conservation, of which I'm a senior fellow. And we were kicking around this idea over the summer that, you know, we actually have this 50th anniversary. Maybe it's time to reflect on what's actually happened. And so what I'm doing is using the last 50 years um, of this organization as a way to start to look more closely at, um, again, issues of the public discourse about environmentalism. And as it turns out, and I've sort of been digging through their archives, it's, you know, it starts in 1963, immediately after Rachel Carson's book. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy came, in fact, to Gray Towers Pinchot's home to dedicate this, but months before he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. So we've got this really tumultuous moment, and it seemed like this thing was going to take off, and then it died. Mm -hmm. And it took about 10 to 15 years to revive it, and it went through various iterations. And so looking, tracking at those iterations is actually a way to help us understand some of the uh, dilemmas that environmentalism as an idea and environmentalists as activists were encountering between 1963 and the present day. There's a a second collection of books, uh, essays, that, that I hope will come out in the next year that uses the idea of place um, as its origin, and um, if essays that I've been writing about New Orleans, San Antonio, the Southwest, California, um, become framed around questions of place and place making and how we know where we live, where we live. Uh, and it's a more personal book in some ways because it's about me thinking about these things mm -hmm. and, and quite explicitly. Um, and so in some cases, it's a bit of a memoir. In some cases, it's maybe more autobiographical than it should be. Um, but it's me, the writer, trying to figure out, as I mentioned uh, earlier, trying to figure out my stance. Who am I? Huh. Um, and how do I know myself in the places in which I live? And well, so it's, it's a really fun book for me to write anyway. Well, those both sound like really fascinating books and uh, definitely look forward to those coming forward. And um, yeah. And again, I just want to thank you for being on the show and I look forward to talking with you more about these things later. Thank you so much, Jen. This is a lot of fun to talk with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Char. See you later. See Bye. You well. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Char Miller about his fascinating book, Public Lands, Public Debates, A Century of Controversy, on new books in environmental studies. Once again, I'm your host, Jen Huntley. I hope you'll join me for my next interview, which will be with Michael Stone, author of Smart by Nature, Schooling for Sustainability, published by the Center for Eco-Literacy. Thank you. <laughs>